Hello, car fanatics in Irvine, Orange County, California, the United States, and around the world. It's time for the most famous words in motorsport. Here to give the command to start the show is my guest today, Jim Swintall. Drivers and teams, start your engines. This week on Speedway Sounds, today I'm honored to have a very high-ranking member of American motorsport live in the KUCI studio, Jim Swintall. Based out of Irvine, Jim is a well-respected motorsport artist, and he was awarded the duty of official artist of the 2017 Toyota Grand Prix of Long Beach. But that's only his hobby. His full-time job is working to officiate races in the race control booth for two of America's biggest motorsports, the Verizon IndyCar Series and the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship. I'll ask him about his career as a race official, stretching back over three decades, and his recent trips to the to the Detroit Grand Prix and the Indianapolis 500-mile race. All that and more on this week's Speedway Sounds. Good afternoon, everyone. I am Noah Stein, and it's a Tuesday, June 6th edition of Speedway Sounds. This is show number nine for the spring quarter, and I have one more next week to finish the quarter. Here in studio with me today is a man who truly has dedicated his life to motorsport. He started his career in 1980 as a corner marshal for the SCCA, the Sports Car Club of America. He climbed the ranks by becoming a traveling series official with CART, the former sanctioning body for American open-wheel racing, and he served as assistant starter. In 2003, he moved to race control with CART, and now he currently serves as race control communicator for the Verizon IndyCar series and race control TV production communicator for IMSA. On the side, he is also an accomplished motorsport artist and was given the duty of designing the race poster for this year's Toyota Grand Prix of Long Beach as the official artist. Without further ado, welcome to Speedway Sounds, Jim. Thanks a lot for all the kind words, Noah. Really appreciate it. And uh, after traveling around the country, just uh, came back from a uh, long extended trip to the Midwest. It's really nice to be doing this. Only three and a half miles from my home. Really cool. That's really cool. Oh, right yeah. here in Irvine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So what was your first encounter with motor racing all those years ago? Grew up in South Bend, Indiana. And uh, Indianapolis 500 is a big part of Indiana culture. I remember being somewhat indifferent about it until my older brother went to the race. I think it was 64, 65, something like that. And that kind of really lit my fires. Paid a little bit more attention to what was going on because he was there. And then he would come back and share his stories. And that, you know, one thing led to another. I got to go to the race in 71, which was the first time my dad took me down and uh, kind of been spiraling up ever since. Very, very cool. Mm-hmm. When people think about motor racing and are passionate enough that they want to make it their career, people usually think about driving the car or calling the races on TV or even building their own car to race. What inspired you to want to join the group of people who organize these races and maintain racetrack safety starting back in your corner marshalling days? Well, uh, even, even going back before that, I remember building little racetracks on my basement floor. Oh, yeah. And I was kind of in control of everything and do these little reenactments of the Indianapolis 500, you know, leading up to the race and then afterwards. So maybe that's kind of where the control bug kind of came from, but I knew that I'd never have the money or the resources to be a driver or even the talent to be a good driver. So when I graduated from school, I joined the uh, Chicago Region SCCA, and anybody who wants to get into racing sort of at the bottom level, not necessarily being a competitor, but really being a part of what makes the race happen, what makes it tick, can start off at the volunteer level. Here in Southern California, there's an outstanding sports car club, Cal Club, 
and their website, I think, is calclubsca.com. Anyway, you can look it up, but it's a great place to start. Yeah. Need a lot of new people. Yeah. So speaking of that corner marshalling, like starting out as a volunteer, mm-hmm. I know it's not an easy job. When I explain it to other people who aren't as familiar with racing, the main idea is that you have to keep your area of the track clear and warn drivers approaching by waving flags when something happens, when a crash happens, debris on the track, etc. What other responsibilities and challenges did you deal with on the job? Yeah, it's very important to make sure that the drivers have the proper information and that race control knows what you're doing out there. So it's you're communicating, and when you're on the uh, corner, you're communicating to the drivers, you're communicating back to race control, you're communicating with each other. But what has kind of come to the fore in in these days is just the whole idea of endurance yourself, being able to make it through generally two or three tough days. You're standing out there in all weather. There may or may not be enough time for lunch, and some of the uh, pro events we do nowadays, the racetrack is so full of activity that the marshals don't get lunch, don't get very much time off. So endurance, getting from the beginning of the day to the end of the day and actually getting from the beginning of the weekend to the end of the weekend. And all my marshal friends who may be listening to me now, they, they know that one of the more difficult tasks is that the usually the big race of the weekend is at the end of the weekend while you've been standing out there in the sun or in the rain for three days. And what we really need and, and count on is, is your support and your best work you can do at the end of the weekend when you're the most tired. So it's becoming somewhat of a difficult venture to do, and most of them just do it for the love, and they're just volunteers. Do you remember the first race you were a corner marshal in? Yes, it was 1980. It was Mother's Day. It was 33 degrees out and raining, and it was just a little a little too warm to snow. And I knew that if I got through that weekend that I could probably get through anything else. And I certainly don't miss nowadays working indoors instead of uh, instead of outdoors. It's it's a tough task, tough ask for all of them out there. Was there ever a situation in your many years of experience on the track in which you panicked or perhaps had no idea how to approach it at first? Um, whenever you get, I mean, you've got your training and you rely on your training. And one of the most difficult things for uh, a course observer or a marshal is to react when you've been startled and be able to rely on what you've just what you know and do it in the face of what you've just seen. I can spin that tape forward and I know that one of my tasks in uh, race control now is to uh, dispatch the pace car. The pace car driver knows when I've been startled or when I've actually seen the incident that I'm calling to them. So uh, it's, it's something that really only comes with a lot of experience. And even that when it's take the, um, take the first incident, this, of this year's Indianapolis 500. Scott Dixon went oh, yeah. flying through the air. Uh, we went 50-some laps uh, without any incidents at all. But when you see something like that, and that's the first thing you've got to react to, it's a little tough. We were, there, was, there was maybe a, a, a second or two when we were a little iced trying to figure out exactly how this thing was going to come out, and then we kind of remembered our training. We sent the car out and sent the safety team out and all of that. But... Part of you is dedicated to the doing, but another part of you is watching, and that part of you can kind of get, kind of get excited every once in a while. Speaking of that Indianapolis 500 wreck with Scott Dixon and mm. Jay Howard, right? Yeah. It was how long was it between the time the crash happened and when when you learned what happened? 
How long of a well, time was that? Well, we have monitors, and we're watching uh, basically what uh, people at home are watching, but we have, instead of looking at one scene at a time we're looking at you know all 20 cameras or something like that and it didn't take very long after the safety team got to scott where he started popping right out and then when we looked at the replay we saw that the cockpit very thankfully didn't really come in contact with anything and when the cockpit doesn't come in contact with anything it's usually going to be a a, a a safe outcome so it's just a matter of of, of watching what's going on you know while you're doing your job mm-hmm at what point did you decide to climb the ranks and join CART, known then as championship auto racing teams? It goes back to, I guess, living in Indiana, and IndyCar racing was very important to me as a boy. And then one thing led to another. I started out as a volunteer corner marshal. Through an amazing circumstance, I met somebody who was a course observer, uh, which is basically a marshal on, a, on an oval. Uh, and back in, that was like in back in 1982, and CART was still young back then. It was still finding its feet. It needed a lot of volunteers. It needed a lot of people to help out, and it was fairly easy to get in at the at the ground level at that point, and, and I worked, I think, 50 CART races on my own dime before I got noticed, before, again, I was in the right place at the right time, and uh, moving up in a career like that, you can have the idea in your mind, and you can decide that you're going to give it your best, but there are a lot of circumstances that are involved. You've got to be in the right place at the right time, and uh, that's kind of what took it there for me. So describe your current role with IndyCar and IMSA. Sort of draw a picture for us. What are your responsibilities, and how do you how do, you do your job? I'm sitting in a room with uh, about seven or eight other people, and let me give you a, a, basically a map of, of, of everybody that's in there. One side of the room is communicators. The other side of the room is data. There's a safety dispatcher, sends the safety trucks out, uh, cleanup trucks, that type of thing. Next to him is the marshals or observers communicator that harvests the information that's coming in from the track side. I'm, I'm sitting uh, alongside them. I'm talking to the teams via radio, our pit officials, dispatch the pace car. And whenever you see essentially an incident and uh, the yellow light comes on, the pace car goes out, you can say a little prayer for me because I've done it right. But on the other side of the room, we have a person who's talking to the teams via instant message, private instant message. This is something that came up just a few years ago, and it's very valuable because what we used to have to do was do it all through radio. I would call the pit official. The pit official would talk to the team. The team would answer back, back and forth. That's the way the job used to be done, you know, back in the uh, back in the 80s, 90s. And now it can be done a lot quickly, a lot more succinctly, and a lot more privately by instant message. There's another person sitting in the room who reads the data and the telemetry of the cars on the racetracks. When we have a yellow period, the cars are required to slow down a certain percentage, and he monitors that. And then lastly, but certainly not least, we have a replay department who all of, the, all of the cameras we're looking at have a replay capability. And when we have to make decisions, when our stewards, we have three stewards, uh, Mr. Davis, Mr. Pappas, Mr. Leindyke, when they have to make decisions about whether a rule has been broken, whether one driver didn't get enough of a room to uh, a, another driver, if there's an incident, responsibility, fault, anything like that. 
they replay the incident several times from several different angles. And behind all of that activity is basically our uh, orchestra conductor, that would be Brian Barnhart, who leads the efforts of race control. That's awesome. So there we are. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. That's awesome. So imagine you were in race control right this second. <laughs> what is what is some of the lingo that you would be communicating to your to your fellow? Um, the Basically. thing that starts everything off, especially on an oval, we've got an oval coming up this weekend at uh, Texas Motor Speedway. Uh, when anybody in the room sees a car spin, a car headed to the wall, um, the the three words that we use are yellow, yellow, yellow. Anybody can say it. Uh, the observers from the ground, the chief observer who happens to be looking out the, the window, anybody who happens to see the, the incident. Um, and we that sort of sets off a, a, a reaction where uh, we turn the lights on, the pace car goes out in the, in the right place, the field slows down, the pits are closed, everybody gets ready, uh, and then we can uh, uh, essentially go out and deal with the incident after that. How do your roles differ between IndyCar and IMSA? Because you don't do exactly the same job for both of them. Right? With Yeah, I'm talking to the teams uh, and to the pit officials in, uh, in IndyCar. In IMSA, I'm doing something very similar, basically at the other end from when I was a corner marshal. So that job has basically come full circle. There's the person who is in race control who deals with the marshals and, and talks with the marshals. And I'm the assistant I basically work the support series. I don't work the big series in IMSA because when those races are televised, I'm actually doing something else, and that is the race control communicator to the TV booth. And essentially, we have a very good relationship with TV. That's that's all great to hear. I mean, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the perspective that you bring from race control because a lot of people don't get to see that during the race. They see television. They mm-hmm. see the cars going around the track. They see the pit crews during the work, but they don't get to see it's, the perspective it's, of race it's control. Very, yeah, it's very, but it's very well orchestrated. During the races at, at IMSA, I'm the communicator to the, to the TV production trailer. We coordinate the TV breaks, the restarts clarifying penalties and and the replays that that type of thing we have a very good relationship uh there is a tv meeting that happens beforehand that allows the tv talent to really get an insight into what the race director is thinking how we call penalties what we're looking for and uh i don't know maybe 90 times out of 100 they agree exactly what the calls we make and that type of thing and one more question before we go to a quick break here. How has race control evolved over the years from when you first started? Back in the early days, uh, we didn't have very much TV coverage. We didn't have a lot of telemetry coming in. I believe Wally Dallenbach, the uh, chief steward of CART, basically just did it with one green, and basically it was the, uh, the program that people were looking at uh, at home. Uh, but now we've got so much more technology that comes in, and essentially... That now has raised the level of the officiating that we have to respond to. When there were problems between cars, between teams, they could settle it themselves after the race. I mean, this is going back even before I started, 50s and 60s, that kind of thing. But now that so much comes into race control, a lot more of it is expected of us. Uh, We can see uh, exactly the spaces between the cars we can replay things over and over, that type of thing. So a lot of these decisions now come through race control that, that didn't really have to before. All right. Thank you so much for your perspective. We'll have you back on in, a, in about a minute. 
uh, to talk about your artwork with the Grand Prix of Long Beach. And for our break, real quick, I have Tristan Cortez, who is a member of Anteater Racing, the Henry Samueli School of Engineering Senior Design Project, with an update before their competition in June. So these past three weeks, we've been testing our Formula SAE car, Mantis. We've been getting uh, our various drivers familiar with the car, running uh, tests like acceleration and braking tests, skid pad, which is basically you set up a circle with cones and the car drives around that circle and we time how fast it can do that. Autocross, which is a course we set up with cones and we take lap times. We also do a slalom test and we ran a mock endurance to uh, get a, a feel for how fuel efficient the car is. So we've been collecting data such as lateral G's and acceleration and things like that. Changing uh, different things on the setup like tow angles, suspension, damping, spring rates, how the car will react, how it behaves in different setup. And uh, yeah, we're just putting the car through its paces, ironing out any issues. For example, we had an issue with the brakes, but we uh, re-bled them and got everything in, in shape. So that was taken care of. And yeah, so Mantis is definitely capable of uh, giving us a good result uh, for competition, which is on June 21st to the 24th in uh, Lincoln, Nebraska. So we're looking to head up there and uh, get a good result and represent UCI. To keep up with Mantis and everything Ant Eater Racing, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Ant Eater Racing. All right, welcome back to Speedway Sounds with Noah Stein here on KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. I'm still with Jim Swintall, who is the official artist of the Toyota Grand Prix of Long Beach this year. Thank you. So when did you start drawing race cars? Oh, every, my standard answer, whenever, uh, back when my mother taught me how to color between the lines, and uh, I've kind of been trying to stay in between the lines ever since. So talk about your official role at the Grand Prix of Long Beach this year. It's your second time in that role as an mm -hmm. official artist. How did your relationship with the event begin? Well, I started officiating back in uh, 1990. Uh, that's when my uh, traveling days started. And so I've been to uh, 27 straight Long Beach Grand Prix going all the way back to 1991. Uh, the first poster art that I was uh, asked to do was back in 2009, first year that IndyCar uh, actually ran at uh, Long Beach. Before then, it was Cart uh, and Champ Car, the previous series. And in 2009, it was a standard overhead view shot of the start. They wanted to bring in the, the new era of the new cars. And I have to thank Jim McCallion and Chris Esslinger, Jim McCallion, the CEO, and Chris Esslinger, the PR director, for asking me in 2017 to, to do something a little different. So in 2017, the, the art is basically in the style of a, of a retro travel postcard. And uh, there's a big greetings from Long Beach at the top. Uh, and inside of all of those letters, just like an old travel postcard, are vignettes of all the five other series that race with IndyCar at, at Long Beach and a bunch of the Long Beach's visual icons. The Queen Mary is there, the Dolphin Fountain, some of the skyline is there. And underneath is a main image of the Indy cars going through the hairpin. And so it came out really good. It, they trusted me. They wanted to do something different. And we kind of shook hands on it. And they said, well, let's try it. Let's see where it goes. I, I am told that the poster sold out halfway through the race. Amazing. Congratulations. And I don't know whether that's true, that that's never happened before. But maybe that's part of the legend. So I'm hoping that they... Might be able to let me do it again sometime. I got a couple more ideas for some more retro themes, like maybe a movie poster or a, a 
comic book cover or something like that. I, I'd really like to do it again sometime. Yeah, and I really love your work. I, as a matter of fact, I have it here hanging on uh, one of our speakers here. It, in it the looks studio. very good in here. It really I, does. I was one of your uh, patrons, I guess, at the and, Grand Prix. And you bought one before, and you bought one before it was gone. Yeah. What have been other than this, of course? What have been some of your favorite projects over the years? When Dan Weldon won the uh, Indianapolis 500 in uh, 2011, yeah, when he yeah. won it in 2011. Uh, there was a story there where I went to uh, Brian Herta, who was the uh, team owner. We came up with the idea, and uh, unfortunately, he was a little too busy then. We had to put it on the back burner. And unfortunately, when we lost Dan a little later in the year, I was able to put the idea back together again. It went into the auction that Graham Rahal put together, and it, it, I, it was one of the things I did as fast as I possibly could because I think I started it after the auction uh, began. It was uh, over a couple of weeks or something like that. But th that was really fun and satisfying to do. We sold a lot of those, and, and most of the proceeds there went to, went to Dan's family. The other thing that I do now uh, that I'm particularly proud of is with the Mazda Road to Indy series, which is the backbone and the stepping stone to Indy cars. It's the Indy Lights and the Pro Mazdas and the USF 2000s. At the end of every season, I will do a championship painting for all of the champions. And that essentially doing that and doing a few of those for the IMSA series as well, that cooks up a lot of my time during the offseason. The offseason used to be a part of my art career that was really slow. And now being able to find something that fills up the, the winter months, is uh, it's really satisfying. Looking back on all you've accomplished in your long career so far, mm -hmm. what stands out to you as some of your best moments between being in race control, flagman, your art? Um, you know, uh, the one that really stands out um, was uh, the checkered flag on track uh, to Paul Tracy, uh, Mexico City, uh, 2003. Uh, that uh, was one of the last uh, races in cart before it morphed into champ car. And we were down in Mexico City, and Chris Neifel was the race director. Chris Neifel had just become the race director, and he had come back from uh, a trip to Europe, and he saw the way they did the checkered flag down there, which was the clerk of the course going out on the racetrack. And Mexico City happened to be such a good old-school type of racetrack that I was actually able to leave race control. I wasn't the starter then. I was the clerk of the course, and I was able to leave race control and get out there and do it. Paul Tracy did a very good job of missing me. All right. Thank you so much, Jim Swintel, for joining me here today on Speedway Sounds. I really, really appreciate your time. Thank you very much, Noah. And again, really, really glad to do it right here in uh, hometown Irvine. All right. That's it for this week's show on Speedway Sounds. Follow the show at Speedway Sounds, all one word, on both Facebook and Twitter for show previews, podcast replays, and your opportunity to ask my guests a question. You're welcome to use the hashtag AnteatersInRacing to discuss any motorsport going on here at the UC Irvine campus. Next week on Speedway Sounds, entirely dedicated to the 24 Hours of Le Mans, UC Irvine aerospace engineering student and driver of the Algarve Pro Racing LMP2 Liger in that race, Matt McMurray will join me as guest co-host. You won't want to miss it as he represents UC Irvine in the greatest sports car race in the world. Coming up next, Beer Ambassadors with Mikhail Woodward here on KUCI. I'm Noah Stein, and thank you so much for listening. Always wear a helmet, and never ever drive distracted or under the influence, and please always wear your seatbelt. You're listening to KCI 88.9 FM in Irvine.